Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm your Saturday host, Sterling Fox, and today, former National Security Advisor Richard Fadden says using our military in natural disasters is a practice we should set aside. Financial wellness expert Lori Campbell has a few suggestions on enjoying a lower budget Thanksgiving this year. Ipsos Vice President Gregory Jack has new numbers from a global poll on our attitudes about the oil and gas sector as a very different winter approaches Europe. And Omega Laboratories Medical Director Dr. Gio Maletto talks about the amount of time it takes to get an approval from Victoria for much needed testing technologies. So let's get started. Here's a series of headlines that caused us to call our next guest. In order, we saw military shouldn't be Canada's go-to disaster relief force, former official says, followed by the headline that says Red Cross calls for civilian force, less reliance on the military for disaster response. And the third headline that brought this file to our attention, Canada's military chief warns China and Russia are, quote, at war with the West, close quote, and Canada is not ready. Here to talk about the use of them, and of course here on CKNW this morning, Aaron Eubels is carrying the story about the Premier of New Brunswick being upset at the Department of National Defense because we didn't send him enough soldiers to help with the cleanup after the hurricane. So there we are. There's the quandary, uh, and let's talk to our guest about this because he's written extensively about it. Our guest is the former National National Security Advisor of Canada. He served both Prime Ministers Harper and Trudeau before he retired in 2016. Always a pleasure to say good morning and welcome back to Richard Fadden, joining us from Ottawa. Richard, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm great, thanks. It's good to have you back on the show. And it's very timely because Aaron just did a story moments ago about uh, the New Brunswick government uh, being angry at the Department of National Defense for taking back some of the troops. We sent them 550, Richard, and now we're down to 400, and they're all honked off at Ottawa because we took them away. Uh, you said in front of a parliamentary committee just a few days ago, this whole business, the military, uh, serv- the Canadian forces assisting in domestic disasters should be left aside. Tell us why. Well, let me start by saying that I think there are some circumstances, you know, extreme disasters where you must call on the military. So I'm not saying never, ever use them. Okay. What I'm arguing is, you know, they should be the last resort, and the key is the word last. So I think basically every time that the military is called out, they're taking they're taken away from vital current operations, but also in particular operational training. This is becoming particularly difficult because the military has not been able to recruit. People are leaving faster than they want them to, and they're not able to recruit. So every person being withdrawn today has a greater effect than might have been the case, I don't know, five or six or seven years ago. So I think part of the issue here, though, is not just that the military is being used, is that Canada's emergency planning capacity isn't as good as it should be. And I say this for all three levels. Right. But fundamentally, the, the international geopolitical environment, to use long words, is getting more and more difficult, as you pointed out in the intro. So I think the Canadian government and the Canadian military have to spend more time, money, and effort to increase the operational capability of the military. And this is very difficult to do if every time there's a crisis, you know, they're called out to do this, that, or the other thing. Right. 
one recalls the, the beginning of all of this, and I'm trying to remember the first incident, and there probably have been several before it, but uh, I can remember Mel Lastman, the mayor of Toronto, mm. calling out the army, Richard, when they had a massive snowstorm, and then they, they had soldiers basically digging out a city. And that seemed to sort of set the, the standard for when a, a minor government, provincial or municipal, could call upon the Department of National Defense for backup. Now, one of the things that people are saying is, okay, well, you know, maybe there's a good part to this. Maybe most of the people who are attending these disaster relief cleanup jobs aren't combat troops from the front lines. They're reservists, and they volunteered to do this, so let them do it. I think if you can use reservists, that's fine. But reservists aren't trained to the same level. Reservists also have to get leaves of absence from their permanent jobs. If they're students, they have to abandon their studies. All possible, all doable. Mm -hmm. But if you want thousands which is all often the case with some disasters, you cannot only re- rely on the reserves. I would argue that part of the difficulty today is that at a national level, and when I say national, federal, provincial, municipal, and civil society, we don't have a comprehensive, all-encompassing view of what we do in disasters. The principle in Canada is that Crises are dealt with at the closest level of government that you can manage, so mm-hmm. municipal, provincial, and federal. You know, I think there's a disincentive today for the provincial and municipal governments to do their own planning and to develop their own capacity because all they do is they call on the military and the federal government assumes most, if not all, the costs. I think the other issue here, too, is a political one, and I'm not directing this particularly at the, at the current government. Mm. It's a general one. It's too easy today for the prime minister of the day to say, I'm sending in the army. Right. On the other hand, we don't have other tools. And I think that for a G7 country of our level of sophistication to give a prime minister only one tool doesn't cover us with a great deal of honor. So I think we need to, while recognizing that in some cases the military are necessary, we need to develop a capability. The Red Cross mentioned this. Yes. They want to develop some sort of civilian reserve. They already have hundreds and thousand peoples on their list able to assist when there's a crisis. But they can't do this if they don't have a comprehensive agreement with all levels of government. But the thing that I think that worries me the most in this context is that As the geopolitical situation in the world deteriorates, we're finding ourselves, for a variety of reasons, it's not just emergency disaster relief, for a variety of reasons, with a military, as the CDS says, less and less able to mobilize and to provide the government with the the capacity to deal with these crises. Uh, not the least of which is their inability to recruit. Now, I don't know what can be done about that in the short term, but these these ancillary or uh, exceptional uses are not helping. Indeed. Now, the Chief of Defence Staff, General Ayer, said, obviously he's been approached by uh, any number of sources, asking for him to coordinate some kind of new branch, maybe even a a division of the armed forces, uh, uh, tailored specifically to respond to disaster relief. And the CDS, the Chief of Defence Staff, says, no, impossible. It's way beyond anything the Canadian Armed Forces are capable of delivering mm-hmm. these days. We're stretched way too thin already. I think that is a monumentally bad idea. I think there's a, there's a, there's a theory of dealing with organizations, is, which is that every one of them on this planet has a, has a core function. And every time you add to these, this core by giving ancillary capabilities and ancillary responsibilities, 
it makes them less and less able to deal with their core capability. In the current context, the last thing the military needs and the last thing the defense portfolio needs is another appendage made up of you know not, neither civilian nor military people that they're going to have to manage. I think it's an appallingly bad idea. What I think we do need, Sterling, is for the federal government to call a public inquiry to look at all of this systematically in light of the new environments, both with respect to domestic disasters and international, the international situation, and try and figure out a way of dealing with these disasters that only use the military in extreme cases. Sure. Failing this, we're just going to keep blundering on. And every time there's a disaster, we're going to, you know, the government will send in the military. The provinces will be irritated. And in the end, I'm not sure you and I and all Canadian citizens are going to be best served. So uh, is there uh, now the appetite for spending the time and resources to develop such a, a domestic response force for specifically for disasters, as opposed to just picking up the phone and calling the chief of defense staff and saying, send in the army? That, that, that's easy. And, of course, you're doing something, so there's a, a leader in action. But, yep. the, but the strategy must be a lot deeper than that. What sort of appetite do you, do you understand there to be, if any at all, Richard, for the creation of a national disaster relief force? Well, my sense in just you know, listening to people around is that that appetite is beginning to develop. But I think it's not really going to happen unless after we have a disaster like the one in the Maritimes, the governments of the provinces don't say to the federal government, you know, we appreciate your help, but this is not working. It's not going to happen until, you know, the government of your province in B.C. says, you know, we potentially have real crises here from a variety of perspectives. We need to have a plan. We need to exercise. We need to have an in-depth review. I don't think that Ottawa is absolutely against this idea, but it's like everything else. People try have to deal with the current day crises, and it requires a little bit of pressure, you know, to get them to take things more, uh, to take a, more, a medium to longer term view. And that's what I'm suggesting here. We need a medium term view that takes into account the domestic and international environment as we find it today. So I think if, you know, shows like yours keep pushing on this issue, if they're beginning to be op-eds, if the provinces start pushing for this, and if Ottawa realizes that the warning by the CDS is a serious one, then I think there's the possibility of something being done. Mm-hmm. Call in the army. It's it's awfully expedient. It's easy to do. One phone call gets things at least at least gets the ball rolling. But ultimately, it's pretty shallow, and uh, we need to be much better organized. That's is that a reasonable summary? I think that's true, and I think there are many resources, you know, including in the private sector, including in civil society, and civil society example would be the Canadian Red Cross, which mm-hmm. is already pretty well organized. But there are all sorts of resources that are available, including volunteers. You or I might volunteer in these contexts, sure. you know, but it requires organization, it requires planning, and it, ex- it requires exercises. This does not require the expenditure of hundreds of millions of dollars. It requires a little bit of will on the part of a variety of people to move it forward. I think it's possible, and I just think we have to keep pushing for it. I think so, too, and I'm, I'm grateful for your time on the weekend to bring this to our attention, Richard. Obviously, we're seeing it. It's, our newsroom is on the story from New Brunswick this morning, but clearly it's something that Canadians have grown perhaps a little too comfortable and accustomed to. I think that's right. Thanks for this. Always a pleasure, sir. We appreciate your time, Richard. Good to have you back. Cheers.
In a year when household economics and economies are facing record inflation and crazy food prices, the costs of even a basic Thanksgiving are out of the question for some. Our folks down at the Dalhousie University Agri-Food Analytics Lab say prices for Thanksgiving dinner staples this year are up 22% compared to last year. So how to deal with all of this? A scaled-back Thanksgiving, perhaps? A pleasure to welcome our next guest to the program. Uh, she is Lori Campbell. And she is a financial wellness expert with Bromwich and Smith. And she's here to talk about Thanksgiving on a budget and perhaps uh, some Thanksgiving lessons we can all pay a little more attention to this time around. Lori, good morning and welcome. Good morning, Sterling. Thank you. Well, it's good to have you with us. Uh, let's talk in general terms before we dive into some of the recommendations that you might have for managing all of this. It is 22% is a significant bump in prices from one year to another, Laurie. That's daunting for a lot of Canadian households. It is daunting. And let's face it, Sterling, it's not just food costs. I mean, there's, there's other costs that have gone up, obviously, oil costs and uh, you know household costs. So, this isn't just hitting our table. This is hitting our whole lifestyle. And so many Canadians are struggling. And, you know, when we have these holidays ahead of us, it, it can be kind of frightening uh, to think about uh, the cost of trying to uh, put food on the table and also, you know, have the traditions you've had in the past. Sure. And one of the good things, now Thanksgiving, of course, is, is a really traditional holiday. And in the United States, we know, for example, Lori, that more people travel for Thanksgiving than they do at Christmas. I don't know what the numbers are in Canada. I suspect we still travel more at Christmas time, but it's still a really big deal for a lot of families and a lot of people in Canada. But uh, you're suggesting that uh, the, the, and of course, one of the reasons I think, Laurie, that uh, that Thanksgiving is such a big deal is that it provides every, uh, most of us or many of us with an opportunity to get together with family and friends and there are no presents involved. You don't have to spend any more money and you don't have to bring stuff and gifts for everybody. A bottle of wine's not a bad idea, but that's that's voluntary. So that that makes a difference even psychologically, doesn't it? It certainly does. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, you have your whole family back together and that's what makes it so special. But of course, as you can imagine, Sterling, as you have your whole family back together, you think about the cost of preparing the meal, especially if you're taking this on all by yourself. Yeah. And, you know, it can run into the hundreds of dollars, if not more. So let's talk a little bit about that kind of uh, planning that, and I, I use the phrase scaled back Thanksgiving, uh, Laurie, and I think a lot of people are in some ways uh, scaling back here and there. Where do you see a lot of that happening? Well, certainly we're seeing, we're seeing a lot of that happening with just the whole, um, you know, big spread that people are doing. They're probably buying a smaller turkey because, let's face it, the cost of meat has is, is gone crazy. True. Uh, you know, uh, they could be using canned vegetables rather than fresh because the cost, again, of, of fresh vegetables is much more expensive than canned. Um, potlucks, that's another way that people are managing. You know, let's let's face it, if you're, you're taking on the whole meal, that is not only a cost, but it's a time that you have to put into it as well. So if you can get others to help bring, you know, perhaps potatoes or bring salad and therefore uh, it cuts down the cost and, and you know the, the burden is not just on you. Another thing that we're seeing people do is they're really trying to think about how that meal can last for a couple of days after. Sure. Uh, let's face it Sterling, we waste food. We all do it. You know, it's, it's, it's inevitable. But I think as, as the food prices and food insecurity increases, people are being very careful about what they purchase and how they use that food so there's minimal waste. So how many meals can get out of that Thanksgiving dinner? Sure. Can you make a soup afterwards? Can you, uh, you know, 
have lunches afterwards. What can you do with that? Indeed. And and it's interesting you talk about uh, sharing the load. Uh, we're going to Thanksgiving dinner, uh, for example. We've been asked to bring the desserts. So uh, there's, there's one responsibility our hostess will not be dealing with. And I think other portions of the meal have been delegated to other participants around the table. So the, in that particular case, uh, the hostess is going to cook the turkey. Not that that's any kind of small job, but some of the other jobs have been delegated out. And of course, the costs involved will also be delegated out. Right. And that's wonderful. You know, some people may be uncomfortable asking if they're hosting for others to bring uh, items or, you know, something to contribute. So if you're one of those individuals that is going to somebody else's place, reach out, ask them. What can what we bring? bring? Yeah. What can you, how can you help? Because, you know, you, the cost and the burden is, is very difficult for some people. You know, food banks, for example, the increased use of food banks have gone up in the last year astronomically. So we know, and, and these are sometimes people that are working, but they're, they're working and they can barely manage to put food on the table. And therefore, they have to rely uh, on this. We're going to see more and more food insecurity as uh, these costs increase. Yeah, Laurie, you're a financial wellness expert, and uh, one of your blogs on the, the Bromwich and Smith website talks about something called thankful finance. What is that? Well, thankful finance is, is really recognizing that, that, you know, there's gratitude around, uh, you know, how you manage your finances, but also, also, and this is very, very important, that, you know, just even being able to make ends meet, people can be very thankful about that, and and. The holidays, a reminder that it's the time, as you mentioned earlier, of us getting together as a family and, and being able to share a meal together and being able to enjoy the simple things in life. Uh, it's not all about the big showy, uh, um, you know, as you mentioned, presents and, and, and those types of things that other holidays represent. It's something much more simple. Indeed. And that's perhaps why we cherish it as much as we do. And we go to whatever lengths are necessary to get at least something resembling a Thanksgiving dinner and gathering together, especially, of course, now that we can all gather. And that's been an impediment for the last couple of years. So here we have, we have finally have a chance. We're finally liberated to gather. And oh my gosh, it's getting more expensive. So we just have to be smart about it. And lots more tips, by the way, friends, at BromwichAndSmith.com. That's Lori Campbell's company. Lori, thanks for this. Happy Thanksgiving. We appreciate your time today. My pleasure, Sterling, and happy Thanksgiving to you as well. Canadians are growing more supportive of the oil and gas sector due to Russia's Ukraine war and the subsequent energy crisis, says a new poll. However, this poll conducted by Ipsos for Global found that while Canadians want our government to help Europe in its energy crisis, well, we're kind of split on the path forward when it comes to global energy sources. Here to talk more about this very new poll commissioned by Global is Gregory Jack. Mr. Jack is a vice president with Ipsos, the polling people. Gregory Jack, good morning and welcome. Good morning. It's good to have you with us. This is a very timely uh, poll because, of course, uh, with the, the, the winter approaching in Europe, Europeans are uh, already starting to panic and looking for support from uh, allies like Canada. And Canadians are beginning to pick up on this angst coming from Europe. But we're not at all settled, are we, Gregory, on how to resolve that problem? No, we're not. And we do see a population that is engaging more on energy issues, for sure, particularly oil and natural gas, uh, due to the, the increased media coverage of, of the energy crisis in, in Europe and the war in Ukraine. 
Canadians are supportive of us supporting our allies over in Europe, uh, by and large. Mm-hmm. But they also want to see some action on uh, on climate change continue. And, and they really want to have it both ways. They want Canada to be supporting our allies, but they also want to see us continue to transition off of fossil fuels in some cases uh, and take action on climate change, which they consider to be important. So that sounds like a circle that's difficult to square or vice versa. So how did it break down, Gregory? Because those are two uh, laudable goals, but almost at odds with each other. Absolutely. And, and you know, as you say, it is a bit of a difficult uh, circle to square. Um, we, you know, we found when we asked people whether or not they wanted to support our allies in Europe, um, 45% said that it's more important right now than, than fighting climate change. So that leaves, you know, 55% who are disagreeing with that. Mm-hmm. We also found 52% of Canadians saying that, you know, climate change is an emergency that has to be dealt with right now. So it is a split population. And, and sometimes, you know, uh, you hear people saying that they, they want to have their cake and eat it too. And I think that this is one of those situations where, uh, where Canadians want both. We also saw some interesting demographic breaks, for example, older Canadians and men, more supportive of helping our allies in Europe and, and of the oil and natural gas industry overall. Mm-hmm. Younger Canadians and women uh, more more worried about climate change and doing something about that at this time. Interesting stuff. Now, were there were there regional noticeable regional differences as well, Gregory, in terms of Atlantic Canadians or British Columbians or Quebecers or anything be more or less on side with general sentiment? We didn't see huge, uh, significant regional variations, although we did find, as, as we typically do, uh, Quebecers were a little bit less supportive of, uh, of the oil and natural gas industry. And, you know, in British Columbia, certainly in, in parts of British Columbia, there was a little bit more support. And Albertans and people in Saskatchewan, as, as we typically find in our polls, uh, were a little bit more supportive. But those, those differences, I think are expected and we find them in most polls. I don't think that they are uh, issue specific in this case. Right. We just had a great conversation with Greg Davignon, the president of the BC Business Council a few minutes ago, and he was talking about a port of the future, which is what he wants Vancouver to become in line with all of the other major West Coast cities. And that would involve uh, a gas station, essentially down the road, Gregory, for uh, the ships of the future, which are all going to be eventually powered by LNG. And if we're going to receive these ships and their cargo, here on the west coast of Canada, we ought to be able to gas them up and send them back with Canadian goods going back home. We don't have that capability right now, and, and yet it's being privately funded, and there appears to be growing support for it. Is that growing support reflective of your findings in the poll? I would say that there is uh, a lot of people who are looking back over the last 10 years, especially on the liquefied natural gas issue that you bring up, and, you know, feeling as if we might have missed our opportunity over the last 10 years to build some of that infrastructure. You might have seen uh, back in August, the German chancellor was over here. Sure, and yeah. The Prime Minister. And, uh, and he said, you know, we could really use your, your product, Canada. We could really use your natural gas. And, of course, the prime minister said, well, you know, we, we don't really see the market for that. Uh, and and they, they announced uh, a green hydrogen export uh, plan for the East Coast. But I know in B.C. there has been lots of talk about building liquefied natural gas export terminals. And I know over the last decade it's been very hard to get that infrastructure built. So I think that our numbers suggest, and other polls that I've seen, Canadians are starting to tune into this issue more because of the media coverage. And we're going to see this as an ongoing discussion and debate we're going to have 
over the next number of years. Interesting stuff, Gregory. And when, when the Prime Minister uh, spoke with the, the Chancellor of Germany, uh, Mr. Schultz, when he came over here requesting some LNG and Trudeau turned it into hydrogen, which the Germ- which we don't have, and which the Germans uh, would appear to try to be interested and grateful about, uh, the, the Prime Minister bluntly said there's no business case for Canadian LNG exports to Europe. Millions of Canadians gasped and disagreed on the spot. That must have been noteworthy. Absolutely. I, you know, there were a lot of people who questioned the Prime Minister's uh, conclusion on that. I'm sure that your previous guest might have been one of them. And we have heard uh, lots of business council leaders talk about the opportunity for Canada, talk about how we can use our oil and natural gas to not only help Europe, but help Canada's economy. Sure. But as you say, the Prime Minister, you know, uh, promised some green hydrogen, which, of course, can be can be produced in a lot of ways. Hydrogen can also be produced from natural gas. Mm-hmm. Um, blue hydrogen, which I think you'd find out west uh, in Alberta and in the western provinces, is, is kind of where some of the producers want to go. They want to produce this this hydrogen, which at the end of the day is, is, is hydrogen, but they want to produce it using our existing natural gas resources. So some real east-west divides on this, where, uh, where we're going to see this going in the future. Interesting. You were talking about BC and Alberta, both of which produce coal, Gregory, and export it to right here at Rog- Rogers- Roberts Bank in Vancouver. Uh, what did your poll find out about Canadian sentiments vis-a-vis coal? Well, not surprising. We did see less support for, for coal uh, than other sources of energy. Sure. It was, it was among the lower, uh, you know, we asked a, a number of uh, sources of energy and support for them. And it was among the lower supported types of energy around, you know, the same place as nuclear, which I think uh, really has gone through a, a difficult period um, in terms of people being afraid of nuclear as, a, as, a, as an energy source. But what we found was support for uh, renewable energy was only 10 points higher than support for natural gas. And so, as I said, when we started, you know, Canadians do want to see action on climate change. They do want to see some sort of uh, move towards renewables. But right now, they also support things like natural gas uh, being produced and, uh, and helping our allies in Europe. Uh, do you think if Europe has the kind of winter many of us, Gregory, are apprehensive they will, which is, you know, limited resources, turning down the thermostats, wear sweaters, wherever, this kind of, this will play back to the bounce back to North America, particularly Canada, as they watch our, our allies in Europe have a dreadful winter. Do you think this is going to affect our numbers uh, in terms of sentiment vis-a-vis exporting our uh, uh, natural resources. I definitely think that if, if, if this continues and in Europe has that kind of winter, this is going to continue to be a conversation and you're going to have more debate, more dialogue about energy, uh, not only in Canada, but, but uh, you know, across the pond as we go forward. I think we're at a real tipping point, a real seminal point on the energy debate. And you can't solve climate change without energy. It's one of the main um, things that have to be, you know, those groups have to be engaged. Absolutely. You are going to see, you're going to see people talking more about this uh, for sure going forward uh, if if Europe has the the kind of winter that, that, as you say, we're we're expecting. And obviously, you know, just next door to you guys, Alberta is going to have a new premier on Tuesday. Daniel Smith has been very pro-oil and natural gas. Alberta is already kind of in that place. There's going to be an election in Alberta in May where uh, Mrs. Smith is going to face off against Rachel Notley and very different visions of the energy future between those two uh, candidates for premier in Alberta. Absolutely. And, of course, this conversation is actually just beginning because winter has just started. Uh, Greg, we appreciate your time this morning. Thanks very so much for uh, taking a moment out of your Thanksgiving weekend to bring us up to date on the latest Canadian sentiment. My pleasure. Have a great day and happy Thanksgiving. 
Our next guest is Dr. Gio Maletta, Medical Director for Omega Vancouver Laboratories, a BC pharma company that's been in the news a few times, uh, not the least of which last year uh, for testing. Dr. Maletto, Dr. Gio, good morning, sir. Good morning, Sterling. How are you doing? I'm very, uh, very well, thank you. May I call you Dr. Gio? You certainly can, yeah. It's, it's less of a mouthful. All right. Well, it's good to have you with us on Thanksgiving weekend, Dr. Gio. Tell us a little bit about Omega Laboratories and the BC uh, operation, because it's a multinational. That's right. Yeah. So uh, Omega uh, Laboratories came to BC at the beginning of the pandemic, around 2019. And we were invited to do so uh, by the movie and TV industry who couldn't get uh, COVID testing in a timely manner in right. order to keep their productions going. So I mean, you remember back at the beginning of the pandemic how hard it was sometimes to get a test. Sure. And not only to get the test, but then the delay it took to get the result, like sometimes three, four days. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's no good if you're trying to run a movie studio. So uh, to keep workers safe and to keep the production moving, they asked us to come and set up a lab in D.C. Uh, in Coquitlam, which uh, we did. We've, we've been there since 20, 2019. So now, when you set up the lab in Coquitlam, did you develop your own custom purpose-built test so that it worked most efficiently in your own laboratory environment? Yeah, so I mean, every test will be different depending on the equipment and the reagents you use, but it's all Health Canada approved, and we were able to get our turnaround times done uh, at around four hours, right, as opposed to three or four days sure. at that point uh, for, for other labs. So using, yeah, we're just using efficient technology and, and uh, innovative uh, uh, computer systems to basically keep that turnaround time around four hours, which is exactly what they needed. Sure. And of course, for the film industry, particularly Dr. Gio, when they determined that even despite the fact that we're dealing with a pandemic, we've got the show must go on. And they were among the first in the private sector to actually decide to collectively to continue working. But of course, with all of the COVID protocols associated attached to continuing working. And one of the most important components was testing on a daily basis. And they were among the first to do that in this province, weren't they? Yeah, that's right. I, I mean, you know, movie sets are places where people work in close confinement. Sure. And you've got to remember, we've all got used to COVID now. But back then, there was a lot of uncertainty about what it was like, how it was going to play out. And they took the initiative to keep people safe by regular testing. But for the production to work, that testing has got to be really efficient. Like, you've got to get the result back within hours. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're just waiting around. So that's where we came in to, to offer them a solution to that problem so they could keep going. So let's talk a little bit about the approval process and an independent operation like yourselves trying to harmonize your activities and your your uh, homework, if you will, with uh, with a pandemic, among other things. And the, the, the bureaucracy is a little stunning, isn't it? Yeah, we weren't fully ready for this. So so when we started, uh, like I say, doing COVID tests, this is one test, the COVID PCR test. Right. right? And, uh, you know, a little time went by and our clients were saying, hey, can you offer us another test? We'd like to do COVID antibody testing, which is the blood test where you find out if you've had the disease or not, or whether you have immunity from the shot. And we said, sure, yeah, we can, we can spin that up, no problem. Like I say, all Health Canada approved equipment. And eight months later, we're still waiting for approval. And we are really surprised by this. We have a lab in Ontario, which we're using for the same reason. And they got approval within eight weeks. So, so 
Yeah. So this is this is a, a provincial jurisdiction uh, approval level because if Ontario approved their activities there within a matter of weeks, and it's taken many months, this is on Victoria, right? Uh, that's right. I mean, it's kind of interesting. I mean, obviously, laboratories should be regulated, right? We sure. Want high standards. We want it to be uh, you know good for people that are using that laboratory. We have no problem with that. But eight months is crazy. And we actually asked uh, to meet with the Ministry of Health over this, and they, they refused to meet with us, um, which was kind of interesting because we're kind of in a health crisis, and we've got some solutions they might be interested in. Sure. And uh, we can't even get one test approved. And uh, in terms of sitting down for uh, a reasonable discussion with someone at the official level to understand a little more about why this delay is taking place, and uh, they don't want to have that conversation. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like they don't, and they've kind of passed it off to the regulatory body, which is called the Diagnostic Accreditation Program, but they operate under the delegation of the Ministry of Health, right? And so, uh, you know, we've been speaking to them, but they take weeks and weeks to get back to us sometimes, and a lot of delays, kind of death by a thousand cuts, really, mm. uh, just waiting to get this one test approved. So have you had it? I'm sorry. Have you had a chance to huddle up with the team in Toronto that uh, got approval from Queens Park uh, in a relatively yeah. comparatively short period of time to discuss the strategies they used with the Ford government in Ontario as how they might be applied to the Horgan currently government in BC? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's our sister lab, so we work very closely with them. We're using exactly the same equipment, exactly the same procedure, yeah. same level of expertise. And, uh, but the regulatory process is different. So uh, uh, here in, in Ontario, there's an independent body that uh, regulates labs. And here it's uh, delegated by the Ministry of Health. And it's just a completely different system. So uh, that's one of the reasons there's been a lot of delays. So it's hard to borrow from Ontario because it's a different system. Yeah. It's not a carbon copy of, of, uh, it's not the similar process in each uh, province. I'm wondering though, Dr. Gio, if you're being stalled on this one uh, blood test, do you have other uh, projects in the works that also require Ministry of Health approval here in BC that are even further down uh, the list than that one? Yeah, I mean, any test that you offer to a person in BC has to be approved, as it should be, right? Because we want high standards. Um, so we'd love to be able to offer other tests to people in BC to, to take pressure off the health system. But we're not going to invest in millions of dollars in equipment, which is what it takes to set up a lab sure. for other tests when we don't know if we're going to get approved. So, you know, it's kind of uh, it's kind of stalled, really, at this point. And yet, in terms of the economy, uh, to say nothing of public health and another option being developed locally, uh, th- there's it's... There's, we're sort of in a stalemate, one might say. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely concern uh, within the Jobs and Economic Development uh, Bureau and, um, you know, the Kukutum Mayor, Mayor Stewart, is concerned as, as a local business, right, that, uh, you know, we've invested millions of dollars in the local business community sure. and, and we'd like to sort of continue to do that. So now, with the possibility of a new premier in British Columbia, likely before Christmas, one way or another, uh, do you sense that maybe there be there might be a, an opportunity with a change at the top to um, see a shakedown of, of, of perhaps a renewal of energy throughout the government, including those approval processes? Yeah, I mean that would be great, wouldn't it? I mean there is an election coming up, as yep. you say, and, and everybody's paying close attention to that. Lots of issues on the agenda, but health has got to be right up there. 
And so we would like to see, uh, you know, some movement in this area because really, who's it good for? It's not helping anybody to be this delayed, right? We want to offer tests to people in BC who need them for industry that's asking for them. Right. And we're just getting caught up in red tape here. Uh, so, yeah, a shake-up at the top would be great to try and get things moving here. So let me just just, re- just reiterate here. You've, you were invited by the film industry to move to British Columbia and set up a laboratory and a testing system and develop your own protocols, and you did. And so now you've got another testing system, another layer of uh, health protection and surveillance, all set to go, that's been sitting on the shelf for eight months because nobody says, okay, away you go. Yes, that's exactly the situation, um, I'm sorry to say. And the level of engagement has been disappointing from the top. And so is there anything else that can be done short of hurry up and wait? <laughs> talking, talking to you, Sterling, we're hoping to uh, get the word out and, and make people aware, you know, health is such an important issue. Uh, you know, I'm a healthcare provider myself, but I also use the healthcare, and uh, we want to see it work better for people. So, uh, you know, we want people to be aware of this as an issue and, and to continue to understand the healthcare system so that they can vote and ask questions of the people in authority. And, of course, the healthcare ministry in this province, as is the case in every other Canadian province, swamped these days, still dealing with the, the, the post-COVID realities and, and staffing and all of these other issues. I would think that is not anywhere near the top of their priority, as, as close to the top of their priority list as you would like it to be right now. That's true. I mean, here's the thing. You know, there's a lot of debate and conversation about the problems in the healthcare system. Yep. We're offering a solution here, and um, it's a really low-hanging fruit. <laughs> we could we could we could be up and running almost uh, you know within within weeks on all the tests that we'd, we'd like to offer people, and people are asking us to offer. So uh, yeah, we feel like you know this is a, this is a really easy solution to to to, to address. Interesting stuff. Dr. Mulatto, thanks ever so much for bringing this to our attention and giving a, 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 a chance to sort of air it out so people can understand this is more behind-the-scenes healthcare stuff that uh, kind of gets lost in the shuffle. And I'm glad we've had a few moments to at least uh, put this one on the table for consideration. Thanks ever so much for joining us today. Thanks, Billy. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live, 6 to 9, weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.